Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with Bela Seabrow, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. Uh, before we begin today, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, the passing of Sheldon Adelson, uh, a philanthropist, a uh, very generous donor to um, many, many Jewish causes in the Republican Party. And our condolences go out to uh, his wife, Miriam, and uh, the Adelson family, and uh, all of those whose lives he's touched so much. The week of January 4th, 2021, will go down in infamy. We saw a usually reliable red state of Georgia elect two radical Democrats to give Chuck Schumer a 50-50 Senate. Then on January 6th, we saw a riot on the Capitol, allegedly by Trump supporters who were allegedly triggered to act by the president's words. Today, we're going to delve a little deeper as to how we got to this point in America, where the polarization and the hatred runs so deep that just being associated with a president the left so despises can lead to and justify violence, harassment, loss of employment, and even worse. If you ask the media or extremist Democrats, they will tell you that President Trump instigated the whole thing and sent his thugs to attack Congress. But is that really what happened? Are the media and Democrats afraid to look in the mirror to see where this all started? How about four years of accusing President Trump of being a Russian asset? How about four years of accusing President Trump of being a Nazi? The same president whose most trusted advisors are observant Jews and whose Jewish grandchildren he speaks of so glowingly, not to mention his unprecedented support for Israel. How about Maxine Waters and other Democrats who called on their supporters to attack and harass members of the administration? How about four years of Trump supporters being threatened and beat up for wearing a red cap? How about four years of the media demonizing and vilifying President Trump and the very air he breathes? How about Nancy Pelosi tearing up the president's speech on live TV following his State of the Union address? How about the summer of 2020 that saw BLM and Antifa activists attacking the police and burning down cities with no criticism from the media or Democrats? In fact, it wasn't until last week that America finally heard Joe Biden unequivocally condemning violence. The list of Democrat and media foul play against Donald Trump and his supporters is endless. Yet they want us to believe that Donald Trump is the main and primary culprit for what happened last Wednesday in Washington. And in just a few minutes, we will discuss all these issues with our honored guest, Brad Blakeman. But I know that Bela wanted to uh, add some comments before introducing Brad. Uh, thank you, Alan. Since January 6th, I remain wondering, is this really happening in the United States of America in our lifetime? While many are accusing President Trump of inciting violence, they really just need to listen to his speech. 
They also need to follow the timeline of events that day. He was still speaking when the first breach occurred at 1240. And it's a 45-minute, a 45-minute walk from the White House to the Capitol, which also exonerates him from the second breach that occurred at 140, since he had just ended his speech 25 minutes earlier. Investigators are still, investigations are still underway. And some Antifa BLM members have already been identified as instigating and participating in the breach. In fact, the BLM activist who called for a revolution and for Trump to be removed from the White House was inside the Capitol and was even interviewed on CNN as a hero of sorts. He was arrested but then released because he claimed he was filming. Uh, although eyewitnesses are saying that he, he was a major instigator. Antifa's literature called for their members to blend in and wear Trump hats to the Capitol. But here's the problem. With much selective reporting these days, the facts are simply not getting out. As a citizen of the United States, a country that is renowned for welcoming and offering freedom to those who flee countries that promote indoctrination, media brainwashing, and hogwash, and instead allow for truth to be told. For a second generation of, of, of whose parents survived death camps for four years, and for those who lived through and heard about the annihilation of people who speak their mind, Of those who lived in countries where people were punished for expressing opinions, there's a strong sense of impropriety about the censorship and propaganda and the justification of what is happening right here, right now. This leftist movement today is very reminiscent of a time period not too long ago in history, and it should be a wake-up call to all. Censorship should be condemned by all. With us today is Brad Blakeman, who was a member of former President of the United States, George W. Bush's senior White House staff, and he's a regular on Fox News. Brad, thank you for joining us today on The Definitive Wrap. My pleasure. The question that Americans have is, how can something like this happen here? Are the left turning our beloved country into a dictatorship? The destruction of the freedom of speech in America today is being carried out by the leftist establishment that dominates the political circle, the social media giants, the establishment media, the educational system, virtually everything, really. Is this why the mainstream media is going along with it, or have they actually bought into the propaganda perpetuated by the left? The fact is that the left is using the Capitol riot of January 6th to criminalize, silence, and destroy not just President Trump, but all Americans who still dare to oppose dictatorship. Well, all you have to do is look to what uh, Chuck Schumer said before the uh, election, the special election in Georgia. He said it's all about winning and then changing America. Um, he meant what he said. And America is going to be fundamentally changed unless and until Republicans regroup and redouble our efforts to stop Democrats. Um, you know, whether it's their radical agenda on, on uh, apology and appeasement in foreign policy, whether it's their radical agenda on taxation and redistribution of wealth, whether it's um, dividing the country further, minorities with, with reparations, It's just, it's a crazy time in America, the green energy um, deal, which will uh, put America back in the Stone Age. 
our electricity and, and uh, utilities will go through the roof. Americans will not be able to heat or cool their homes, um, drive their cars. Uh, th- this is a crazy agenda the left has is, uh, incorporated the media into. They happen to believe it. Um, and now they control uh, the, the House, the Senate, and the White House, albeit in the, in the Congress by small majorities. Um, they still have control. They set the agenda. Um, they set what legislation will be permitted. Uh, they'll have the ability to um, confirm judges and, and cabinet. Uh, this is a perilous time in America, and, and we are at a crossroads. Either we are going to go down a road of socialism, despair, and, and uh, American um, values are going to be lost, or we're going to pick up the pieces in two years uh, because that's what, it, unfortunately, we're hostages for two years um, until there's a midterm election. And then, of course, we have to regroup two years after that uh, to take back the White House. So we have a lot of work to do in stopping and thwarting their radical agenda and standing up to a media who is totally now bought in to a socialist agenda, limiting our, our speech, uh, and, and corporations who for years have given uh, almost 10 to 1 or more to Democrats instead of Republicans. It's time for shareholders in these corporations to rise up. Uh, th- this is, it, look, we, if we didn't learn a few things in the last election cycle, then we're condemned to repeat the history we just went through. And that is, we need uniform national voting standards across the board. Yep. We need campaign finance reform. We need social media oversight, regulation, legislation, and yes, including litigation, antitrust to break up these monopolies. Brett, one of the things I want to point out, and there's so much to talk about here, and I read this last night, uh, we saw a lot of media outlets posting pictures of some knuckleheads who were in Washington, uh, people wearing Nazi-themed T-shirts. One of the shirts, it's reported, was of a guy who wasn't even at the rally. It was photoshopped in from a rally he was at a year ago. Yet this is how low the media is going now to Photoshop in people like that and then say these are Donald Trump's supporters. And what bothers me so much is, you know, we can call each other names. That's political discourse. But when we start invoking the Holocaust and Nazism, as if it's nothing than just an insult to somebody, that should scare the hell out of everyone. Because once you call, once you can say that somebody is a bona fide Nazi, then there's no reason to not get violent and attack them. I mean, who wouldn't want to, who wouldn't want to beat up a Nazi, you know, if they could get their hands on one. And this is where we're at today. Um, And something that I write about a lot is um, it's one thing when you have people who are ignorant invoke Nazism, but what we are seeing more and more is uh, our Jews on the left trivializing it Uh, before the Georgia race. You had Devorah Lipstadt, uh, who's not a radical activist. She's a noted Holocaust scholar who made a moral comparison between uh, rejecting or questioning election results and Holocaust denial. Uh, Peter Beinart, uh, who I always regard to as a stain on Judaism, is now a columnist for the New York Times. And he has made regular comparisons between Israel and Nazism. And this is the path that we're going down. And 
this didn't just begin four years ago. I mean, this began during the Obama administration. It began during the Clinton administration with the rise of uh, the Center for American Progress, with the rise of Media Matters, going after Fox News for decades until the, you know, they got rid of Bill O'Reilly. They got, they've been trying to shut down Rush Limbaugh. Um, it goes on and on and on. So this didn't just start a week ago, four years ago. This has been going on for years and years and years. And no one did anything to stop it. And I don't see how we're going to stop it just by us regrouping now. Well, we need to stand up to it. <clears throat> I served with Deborah Lipstadt on the uh, United States Holocaust Memorial Council. I was appointed by President uh, Bush the first, uh, the father, for six years. And uh, it was sacrosanct that we would never, ever um, disparage or demean uh, the meaning and intent and history of the Holocaust. It is a unique period of time. And for us to, to, to uh, equate uh, or to label people with that kind of description of Nazis or Nazism is beyond the pale. Um, it's a convenient way of demonizing people at the expense of history and memory of the six million plus Jews who were murdered at the hands of the Nazis. So, you know, shame on anybody who flippantly makes that uh, comparison in order to gain political points and demonize their enemies. Um, they do it at the expense of the memory of those who perished because of who and what they were by a government that was unique to that time uh, and was stopped, by the way, uh, by uh, Gentiles. We came together as a country, um, uh, and, and others came together, Jews, non-Jews, blacks, whites, whatever you were, to fight against this, this demon. And, and uh, to trivialize it, it's beyond the pale. And, and unless we stand up and, and, and be true to never again, never again will we let a politician or an individual um, mar the memories of the souls who were lost, or to conveniently use the Holocaust and its victims as a political uh, weapon. No, that can't stand in America. Brad, um, I mentioned earlier how the situation going on is uh, reminiscent of an earlier period. There are people who may not be aware that Antifa was an organization that was born in the 1920s. But what they have been doing at present times is building up the movement that insulates from the policies of Donald Trump. And we also saw this past summer the disturbing silence from leaders of the Democratic Party, how people who call themselves Antifa shut down free speech by beating people who dare speak their minds. Brad, what is your opinion about that? Well, they claim Antifa is not real. Antifa is real. Of course yeah. it's real. A Black Lives Matter is a is a in 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 my view a terrorist organization domestic terrorist organization um, masquerading as as some kind of legitimate uh, voice of Black America. That's not so. Uh, look at the destruction that they've caused. Look at the chaos, mayhem, and death that they've caused. Um, and and what did cities do? Primarily run by Democrats, stand down and surrender their cities to a mob. Uh, th this is this is crazy. It was I unbelievable. A, it was unbelievable trip, watching this. I took a trip this summer. I wanted to see it for myself. I went to New York. I went to Chicago. I went to Seattle. I went to Portland and L.A. I've never seen the kind of despair that I've seen in these cities. 
I've never seen the fear uh, and, and, and the desolation of these cities. Um, they've killed themselves at the expense of a few. I don't want to be labeled by, as a conservative by the bad behavior of a few. And the left shouldn't, shouldn't tolerate being labeled by the same. We should stand up for what is right. Whether you're left or right, the extremes are there. We must reject it and we must come together. There's more that unites us than divides us. But to have politicians who are in leadership positions knuckle in and under to these domestic terrorists is, is unacceptable. Um, and I've seen it firsthand. I talk to hotel workers. I talk to Uber drivers. I talk to business owners in these cities, primarily run by Democrats. That's a fact. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they, they look what Governor Cuomo did. You know, when we say, you know, we've got to open that up and that the cure is worse than the disease and it's killing off our, our people. What does Governor Cuomo do? The guy who's killed off New York. He comes out today and says, no, we got to get New York back to work. It's strange. When does he come up with his prophecy? After the election. And now he claims to be the Messiah who is going to save New York, the very guy who killed New York off, because we got to get back to work. But when I say it, I want people to die. When he says it, he's a prophet. Brett, I'm going to ask you a question that's very, very naive, but I just have to ask it. You know, when um, I remember Walter Mondale, Michael Dukakis, Paul Tsongas, we called them liberals, and that was enough to stigmatize them. Today, if you're a liberal, you're a good guy. Um, how? And again, I know it's just it's just naive, but I have to ask it because you you're you know Washington better than anyone else. How is it that people like Chuck Schumer, who's not a mealy mouthed little coward, how is he so afraid and intimidated? And I will speak of her disparagingly, but how is a guy like him so intimidated by a former bartender from the Bronx? And I, I used to call her worse, so I, I'm being respectful here. <laughs> but, but basically, I mean, this is what it comes down to. You have people who in Washington who are powerhouses. All of a sudden, they're being intimidated by these little rugrats. Explain that. She should have been squashed like a bug. They created these monsters instead of reeling them in. And now they have to deal with it. For Chuck Schumer, it's all about power. He will say and do anything for power. Pelosi will say and do anything for power. I mean, these people, our our constitution should be one that is honored as written. And and we should take from our forefathers their actions. When when they pleaded with with George Washington to stay on as president, he said, no, I'm out of here. It's healthy. It's cathartic for the nation. We need new leaders. Democrats, they'll never give up leadership. Pelosi will be dead two years before she gives up the speakership. Right. And I'm not hastening her death. I'm just saying that's the type of, of power-hungry individuals we see. And they're willing to, to, to put up with and to encourage these radical views in order to retain power. So you know something I want to bring up because it's been brought up so many times and years ago I thought it was a good idea, term limits. And I thought it was good. This way, no one gets to be powerful for too long. But I look what happened in New York City. It's term limits that gave us people like Bill de Blasio because what happens is you bring in, you have an administration for two to four years. They then go up the ladder and they groom a whole new generation of people who are even further left. So as badly, as much as we don't want to keep people in power for too long, 
if we get rid of what we know, what's coming up behind is going to be 10 times worse. Yeah, I mean, I don't believe in term limits. I believe in the people should have the power to determine the term of their, of their uh, elected officials. It's, it's not a fixed number. Now, I understand why it was done in the case of a president for the Senate and the Congress, the terms, and specifically for the president, because we don't have emperors in this country. But as far as, as term limits are concerned, I will determine as a voter uh, what the term limit should be. And constantly holding people to account. You know, if people know that their term is up, they're even more dangerous because they're unhinged. They don't have to answer to the people. Right. Brad, what is your take? Now, going back to Georgia now, if we can, um, what did Stacey Abrams do? How did she register 100,000 new people? Because that has to be, she has to be the king now. Uh, in the, during the first round, uh, David Perdue got more votes than Ossoff. And uh, Kelly Loeffler, together with uh, Doug Collins, got a lot more votes mm-hmm. than, um, than Warnock. So I'll, I'll, I'll give for people who were either angry at Trump or they weren't angry at the Republicans. I mean, to me, it was a second chance to, to redeem Donald Trump. But again, I can't get into the heads of people who and why didn't show up. But apparently, they are crediting her with registering a, another 100,000 people. Um, do you know what she did? Um, what we're not doing, what we should have done, because I always had a lot of faith and hope in people like Carl Rove, uh, who knew the who know the inside machinations of everything political. Yeah, well, unfortunately, Carl came in way too late in the game. Um, you know, had Carl been there as early as Stacey Abrams had been there, uh, things might have been different. Stacey Abrams uh, had a lot of money, and she had a lot of organization, and she micro-targeted. Um, she was targeting people who were not coming to voter age until the election cycle. Right. So, um, you know, to her credit, um, she had a great organization. She knew who her targets were uh, and she did a great job. Here's the problem with conservatives. We rise and fall with election cycles. We're not consistent. Democrats are consistent. Uh, We seem to bring in the cavalry at the last possible moment in election when it's too late. It's not how much money you spend, it's how you spend it. So what we need is we need consistency. We need organizations that um, are around 24-7 and not just during an election cycle and then disappear. We need a a Republican version of a moveon.org that is well-funded and and works 24-7, 365 days a year for our mission. We need to be working with the RNC to groom candidates find candidates and, and get them positioned early. A mayor today could be a governor tomorrow. We're not doing that. And, you know, shame on us. But that's what happened in Georgia. And, and it was consistent. They, they did their job. They were well-funded. And, you know, that's what happens. Brad, everyone I speak to uh, has the same concern. Americans are concerned about what the future may hold based on the present political climate. What is your opinion? And as Alan said, no one knows Washington better than you. Well, I think what we need to do is we need to regroup. We need to get past the Trump era. Um, look, having a leader um, that has done great things for our country is a great legacy. But now we have to build on that. The Trump legacy is over, um, and, and we, have to, we have to, you know, pick up where he left off. He's done some great things for our country. 
for me in supporting Donald Trump, it was always a balance between rhetoric and results. I didn't like a lot of the rhetoric, but I sure liked the results. We've got to take the good that uh, Donald Trump has done, both in repositioning our party and giving us more of a backbone and a spine to speak up. And we have to build on Donald Trump's uh, ability to reach out to minorities more. Um, we made great uh, inroads with uh, the black community, Hispanics, the Asian community, uh, blue collar workers. Uh, you know, while union bosses may not have supported Donald Trump, the workers surely did. So let's find candidates, let's find leaders, let's thank Donald Trump for what he's done. But now it's time to, to move on to another era. We have a lot of work to do in two years to ov- overturn uh, the election of this past um, uh, December and uh, November, and uh, uh, rather January. And we're going to regroup. We're going to be better for it and uh, a stronger party. But we have, to, we have to acknowledge our weaknesses and build on our strengths. You know, one of my favorite quotes came from Newt Gingrich. I think it was about two years ago. He said, Donald Trump often says the right thing, but then he goes about 10% too far. Yeah. I said, that, that's exactly you. And one thing I also want to ask you, again, I'm a Republican activist. I'm very active on social media. One of the things that bothers me so much is the demonization of people like Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. And I have to remind people, um, they all have very, they wear many different hats. It's not their job to carry Donald Trump's water 24-7. Remember, if not for Mitch McConnell, there is no Neil Gorsuch. If not for Mitch McConnell, there is no Amy Coney Barrett. If there's no Lindsey Graham, you don't have Brett Kavanaugh. And too often, Susan Collins, another, she's a liberal Republican. But thank God for her, we have uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And one of the things, again, that we do wrong, and it, it drives me up a wall, is how d- Republicans turn on each other so quickly that unless they march in lockstep. Listen, Donald Trump is not perfect. He, he did great things, the most consequential leader. I have no apologies to anybody for supporting him for four years. But it wasn't that I didn't wince every time he got to Twitter or he spoke. Uh, he does not speak like Don Jr. or like Ivanka. But what happened last week also damaged them tremendously. There was talk about Lara running in North Carolina. I don't know if the Trump name will will carry anymore. Ivanka was brilliant, classy, everything you could ever want. You know, she may be damaged now from everything that happened. So I think Republicans have so much soul searching to do within our own ranks. There's there's no doubt about it. And that's what's cathartic about it. You know, uh, families squabble and uh, but blood is thicker than water. To your point is we got to come together, you know, and you're right. Uh, Mitch McConnell and others wear many hats. They have many constituencies, including in their own home states that they're that they're responsible for and have to answer to. And, uh, you know, we're not perfect. And and, you know, if you don't learn from your mistakes then you're condemned to repeat it. But we now is the time for leaders to emerge and they will and uh, will take us to a, a better place. But, um, you know, Donald Trump has been a consequential president and he's done amazing things for our country. And the only reason why he did it is because of who he he was, that he wasn't a politician. So let's take the good that he's given us and let's get better. 
Uh, Brad, we're running out of time, um, but I know that our listening audience is very curious, and of course I am, about your career with the White House. Can you tell us a little bit about those days, please? How did you know? How did you get that job? Inquiring minds want to get to know more about how your career began. Well, I started at a college as a volunteer with uh, his dad. He was Ambassador Bush. He was running with Ronald Reagan as vice president. Very few people knew who Ambassador Bush was. Um, And then he became vice president. Um, I went back to law school. I continued to help his dad um, in in the White House as vice president for eight years. And then when he ran for president, I joined his campaign. Uh, I worked for his dad's uh, election. I continued in the White House uh, helping as a consultant through his four years, went to work again on his campaign for re-election. And then, of course, we lost. And I went back to practicing law with my family. He appointed me to the Holocaust Memorial Council. I served there for six years while the museum was being built. We opened the museum. And then um, his son came along, and his son asked me if I would help him. And, of course, I took a year and a half off my uh, law practice, went around the country with him. Um, was in charge of election night in Austin, and that didn't turn out so well. And then they sent me to Florida. I was in Florida for 37 days for the recount, um, and then was invited to serve on his senior staff. And I was the quote-unquote gatekeeper. I was in charge of his appointments and scheduling, vetting, research, and surrogate scheduling at the White House. Did that for three years, and then decided that I would stick around Washington and um, became a lobbyist and a consultant. I had a business partner who's a Democrat, David oh. Friend, who was a senior advisor to uh, President Bill Clinton. We met uh, knocking the crap out of one another on television. Mm-hmm. And one day we were in the green room and we said, you know, we like each other. We respect each other. Let's make money together. And one thing I found out about Democrats is they like to make money too. <laughs> And, well, why he, not? <laughs> and he even bitches about paying taxes. Right. So uh, we got along well. We continue our business, the 1600 Group. And um, here I remain. Brad, Thank you. Thank is, you. is the, is so the path you took the model for how young Republicans uh, climbed the ladder? Yeah, I mean, you need, you need to get involved. And you need to get involved at the local level. I was, I was passing out literature in my dad's campaign when I was 10, um, I stayed involved because my father and mother instilled in, in the five of us that a life isn't complete without public service. Either you can run for office, you can, you can work, but you don't have a right to bitch about anything unless you do something about it. And, uh, and that's been our life. My father um, saved a hospital. He was on the board of a hot local hospital um, when it was about to be um, sold and, and turned into something else. He said, no, wouldn't permit it. He served as a New York state assemblyman. Um, he's done charitable work throughout his, when he was alive. Uh, my mother did as well. That was instilled in us as kids. And, uh, you know, I heeded their advice. And, and uh, one day I told my mother when I was 17, when I was in Palm Springs, California, President Ford came to visit Palm Springs and I saw the Air Force One out on the tarmac, and I told my mother, someday I'm going to be inside the fence and on that plane. Wow. And I was, and the first call I made was to my mom. Hey, wow. Mom, guess where I'm calling you from? Yeah. Like that Seinfeld <laughs> episode when George calls his mom from the limousine. Yeah. Sounds like your career began when you were 10, and really it, you got it from the home. It's the way you were raised. You had a beautiful upbringing, and you're doing so much for um, 
the public, and we very much appreciate it. And, and then one last know, thing, running out of time, and one last thing, I got to say, your brother is both of our councilmen. Oh, terrific! Good. Yeah. <laughs> thank we'll you hell. so much. <laughs> we do. Okay. Yeah. Okay, Brad. Thank you for everything. I know Bela okay. wants to, say, to thank you I as well. I just want to thank you so much for joining us. It, it's been an absolute honor and um, your, your, your commentary and your experience and your background um, has given us so much today. And thank you. And well, thank you to our listening audience for joining us and for tuning in. Thank you, Brad. Okay. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.